Those are the most loving announcements I've ever heard. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for this time. We thank you for these men and women that you have gathered here. We thank you that for another week we get to come and sit under the authority of your word. We pray that you would draw us near to yourself through the preaching of the word, that you would today encourage us and rebuke us and correct us and instruct us and admonish us as you have promised your scriptures are able to do. We pray that you would save us and sanctify us as you have promised us your scriptures are able to do. We pray that you would keep your word. You told us that you will send out your word and it will never return to you void or empty, but it will always accomplish the purpose for which you sent it out. So keep your word to us today by sending out words from my mouth that they would be like arrows to our hearts, that they would cause faith to arise, conviction of sin, faith in Christ. Do not let it return empty, but accomplish whatever it is in each of our hearts and lives and in us as a people today for which you send out our words. Help us as we consider you today. Draw us to Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, I want you to imagine that you are watching your favorite movie, all right? I don't know what yours is, so I'll tell you about Braveheart, since that's one of my favorites, all right? So Braveheart, if you haven't watched it, do yourself a favor, go rent it and watch it. But there's this one scene in Braveheart that is particularly great. It's one of my favorites. It's the scene where the the ragtag army of Scotland is about to face the imperial army of England. And they're about to show up on the battlefield and do battle. The the lines are sort of drawn. And this ragtag bunch comes and they, they don't have any leader. They're sort of in disarray. And on the other side of the field comes the the impervious, formidable power of England. They come in all their pomp and their power, and this ragtag bunch of Scotland sees that, and they're done. They're ready to go home. They don't want to die that day. And so the the crowd, the army's about to disperse. And at just that moment, William Wallace comes riding in. He's got war paint on his face, and he makes one of the the greatest speeches in cinema, right? He he rallies the crowd. He pulls at your heartstrings. He he gathers their emotions, and he's going to get them to stay on this field and give their lives. And in the last line of that great speech, he has this great sentence where he says, they may take our lives, but they'll never take... All right, now imagine... All of a sudden, the credits start rolling, right? And you've got this list of names, this registry of names, and, and honestly, other than one or two, you don't even recognize them, and, and you don't know what that's about or why that's there. But after two minutes of the credits rolling, the scene comes back, and Wallace finishes sentence, our freedom. And you go, what is that, Right? You're sort of disturbed, you're annoyed, you're, you're going, why would they put that there? How does that make sense, right? Why would we care about a list of credits? Why would we care about these names? And honestly, other than one or two, you don't even recognize the list. And so you're not sure why that was there. You're not sure why they would interrupt this riveting story, this incredible scene by giving us this registry of names. That's sort of what Exodus 6 verses 14 to 30 can feel like. If you heard the passage that Nate read, if you've got a Bible, it's on page 48 and 49. You're in the middle of this great scene, this riveting story, this incredible scene, and all of a sudden in Exodus 6, verse 14 to 30, you get this list of names. 
this registry of names. All right. So I, I don't know how it's been for you. I hope you've been enjoying this series. But the story of Exodus is this great story. So when you're about to get to 6 verse 14, here's the story that we've been listening to. In chapter 1, it starts out great. There's this evil king, and he is ruling over this innocent people. He's enslaved them. He's trying to dominate them, destroy them. He orders the death of their children through many different ways. He tries slavery, then he tries to kill them through the midwives. When that doesn't work, he tries to throw these babies in the Nile. Then in chapter 2, you've got one child that is spared, that somehow escapes Pharaoh's plot, and he grows up, and, and this child that was once hunted now becomes a prince in Pharaoh's own court. And he grows up to be a deliverer, and then he's a fugitive, and he's on the run. So it's got all the makings of a great story. Then in chapters 3 and 4, God himself shows up to this man while he's on the run, out of a burning bush, calls him onto mission. This guy hesitates five times. He says, but, 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 and he doesn't want to do it, and God overcomes him. And chapter 5, we saw he goes back to Pharaoh. It's a great story. So then he tells Pharaoh everything God had told him to say, and last week, before Easter, we read that as a direct result of his obedience, things get worse than they've ever been before. Not only does what he do, does not work, not only do things go from bad to worse, now everyone hates him. Israel hates him. Thanks a lot, Moses. Pharaoh hates him. We don't care about you, Moses. Everybody hates Moses. And so now in 5 verse 22, two weeks ago, we said, he cries out to God and he says, why have you done this? Why did you send me? I told you not to send me. And since I've gotten here, Pharaoh's done nothing but evil and you have not delivered your people at all. In chapter 6, we said last, last time that God answers back to, to Moses and says, Moses, everything is under control. Everything is exactly where it wanted to be. You are about to see me do my wonders. So go back to Israel and go back to Pharaoh. And in 6 verse 12, if you look there for a second, Moses responds to the Lord, and this is what he says. He says, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. So, so you've got Moses basically saying back to God, You want me to go back to Pharaoh? The, the people of Israel who actually believe in you, they don't listen to my words. Why would Pharaoh, who doesn't even know you, why is he going to heed me? If Israel's not listening, why am I supposed to go back to Pharaoh? And I'm not a great speaker, and I'm not ready to say what you want me to say. Moses is basically saying to God, to this whole mission, to this great story, I can't do it. And at that cliffhanger of a moment... When it seems like he's about to retreat and he's seen the formidable power that's against him and he's about to run, at that cliffhanger of a moment, you get 6 verse 14 to 30. A list of funny names. A registry of, of names that you hardly recognize. It's not credits. What it is is a family tree. A genealogy. Okay? When you see that, your thoughts are, why is that there? What's it doing there? What's important about that? What are we supposed to learn from that? What are these genealogies about? If you've read through the Bible or even thumbed through it some, you've probably seen these before. And though we don't understand them, there's probably some importance to them because the Bible is filled with genealogies. It devotes several pages, much ink, lots of space within this book to cover long lists of funny, unrecognizable names. 
So whatever it is, at least the scriptures think that these lists, these genealogies are important. And so we want to ask, what is this here for? What's it about? What are we supposed to learn from it? Right? Why does this great story with this great scene suddenly pan out to give us a family tree, a genealogy? All right, let's start by saying this. Though we don't understand it, and though this seems like an intrusion into the story, though it seems like an interruption into the story, I want you to know that the original audience who would have read Exodus for the first time would have welcomed this insertion. They would have rejoiced in this inclusion of a family tree. Here's why. The first readers who are reading the story of Exodus for the first time, as they're going through the story, the question that keeps coming in their mind is, who are these guys? Who is Moses and Aaron? If we're going to waste all this time or think about them or, or print and read about them, who are these two men? Who is Moses and who is Aaron? That's the question that's been brewing in their minds. And particularly at this juncture in the story, this is what they want to know. Remember, Moses has just finished saying, I can't do it. And so they want to know, that's right, who is Moses to be able to pull this off? And who's his brother Aaron who's supposed to help him and be his mouthpiece to Pharaoh for him? Who are these two guys? And in the ancient Eastern culture, when you want to know who these guys are, it answers it by telling us a little bit about who they came from, their family. Hear that again. In this culture, when you want to know who this person is and learn more about their identity and who they are, they want to know where you came from. There's an old adage, and I don't remember where it was, but it, it says, if you want to know about someone and what they're about, if you went to Boston, they might ask you what school you went to. If you went to New York, they might ask you where you worked. But if you came from the South, they might ask you about your family, where you came from, who are your relatives, because as they know that, they know something about you. And I can tell you this, this family in chapter 6, 14 and onwards, is like a family from the South, right? Many reasons. One, they're marrying their aunts and their cousins and their uncles, so they, they seem like a family straight out of Kentucky, but that's a, a different story. But, but family is really important to these guys. It tells them something about who they are. For example, many of you come from Eastern backgrounds, right? I have Indian parents. I have witnessed, and many of you who know this have witnessed yourselves, when my Indian parents meet another set of Indian parents, within about 30 seconds after what's your name, where do you live, the question is, where do you come from? And suddenly there's this long list of funny names of places back in India and house names that you can't pronounce. And in two minutes, we find out, it happens a million times, we are distant cousins with whoever they just met, right? A billion people in India and everybody is a second cousin to everyone else, right? And it happens all the time because they're not interested in that Eastern culture. They're not interested in just you. You means they want to know who you came from. And to understand who you are, they need to know who everyone else that brought you into the world is. In this culture into which Exodus is written, if they're going to know who Moses and Aaron are, they want to know where did these guys come from? Who are they? Where do they stand in the genealogical timeline, in the family tree? 
And so why we have this insertion is, though it seems odd to us, though it seems like an intrusion to us, this would have satisfied the curiosity of the original readers who have been wondering the whole time, who are Moses and Aaron? Okay, but here's the thing. Genealogies do more than give us a list of names. They teach us something. In the scriptures, whenever you have genealogies, whenever you have these lists of funny names, they do more than convey historical information, though they do that. They give the reader theological information. They're not only historically important, they are theologically important. Hear that. They not only tell the reader who Moses and Aaron are, that these are good Jewish boys from their family. They not only introduce characters that will later show up throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but it also conveys theological information. You're learning through these lists not just who Moses and Aaron are. You're going to learn, the scriptures are going to say, who God is. They are conveying not just historical information, theological information, not just historical truth. They are putting forth theological truth. That when you look at these lists, you're about to learn a little bit more about who God is and what his character is and what he is doing. So that's what I want us to give our attention to this morning. What theological truths are these genealogies, particularly Exodus 6, trying to convey? What truth about God and about us is Exodus 6 trying to convince us? Genealogies in the scriptures are not wooden, meaning they sometimes skip people and they skip over generations because they're trying to put forth a point, a theological point. And so what I want us to consider is what truth about God does the list in Exodus 6, 14 to 30 convey? I want to give us three truths from this list. Here's the first one. The first truth that this genealogy conveys to us is that God knows us by name. The first truth I want you to hear from this genealogy is that God knows us. God knows you by name. If you've ever read through the scriptures and you come across a genealogy, that is an automatic cue for you to do what? Skim through this in about 10 seconds or skip it altogether, right? In fact, it would be helpful for us if these genealogies had a heading that just said, skip this part, because that's what we do. We read these lists and we go, who are these people, right? I mean, who the heck knows who Hanak and Palu and Hezron and Carmi and Reuben and Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and on and on it goes. Who the heck knows who they are and who the heck cares, and hear me, that's exactly the point. God does. God does. God knows them. And God cares. These unrecognizable, ordinary, unknown people are included in the list because God knows every one of them by name. God remembers them. God has included them into the story. Their names are included in the book. You think of that. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, all across the globe, we're reading a name like Marari. Who is that? And that's the point. God knows, and God remembered, and God included their names in this book. If you're an ordinary person, hear me, if you're an average Joe, this should be a huge encouragement to you. 
Because if you're like me, when you think about who it is that God cares about, who it is that God remembers, who it is that God knows intimately, whose life is God personally involved with, whose story does God know well, who does God choose, who does God use, who are in his people, you think that God loves the elite. You think that that list of who God knows, who God loves, who God remembers, who God includes is a very short and narrow and elite list made up of the superheroes and the giants and the larger-than-life personalities. But aren't you so glad that the Bible isn't just a name of the superheroes? Aren't you so glad that the Bible doesn't just list the names of Paul and David and Solomon and, and Stephen and all the others? Aren't you so glad that Hanak and Carmi and Nepheg and Uziel and Hebron and Hezron, that they made the list? Aren't you so glad that God thought enough of them to include their names Aren't you so glad that Exodus 6 isn't just, and there was Moses and Aaron, but that their two names that you recognize are surrounded by a list of names that you don't, because God knows them and God remembers them. What this list conveys is that the scriptures are filled with ordinary people that God knows, that God loves, that God remembers, that God includes, that God uses, that God counts, that God does not forget or overlook. This list is conveying this truth that God's people have always been made up of ordinary people. These lists, even these names, tell us about their ordinariness. This one pastor named Philip Reich, and he points out that you can get a sense of their ordinariness, their commonness, their everydayness just from their names. For example, Palu means extraordinary. So you can imagine he had some very demanding parents so that from the moment he was born, they go, that boy is extraordinary, right? Like some of the homes you grew up in. Some of you have already registered Palu. That's what I'm naming my firstborn son, right? Just, just a boy with some demanding parents like ours. Cora means baldy, right? So he had as much hair as Keith coming out of the womb, right? Just an ordinary guy. Nepheg means clumsy. Don't you love that? Shawl means prayer's answer. So maybe his parents had a hard time getting pregnant or conceiving. And when this boy was born, all they could think is, this is prayer's answer. This is Shawl. These are ordinary people. And yet God knows them. God knows their stories. God remembers them. God adds them. God includes them. God knows them intimately and personally. Exodus 6 does not just tell you the story of Moses and Aaron and all about them. God knows personally and intimately Nepheg as much as he does Moses or Aaron. We skip over genealogies because they're not important. God includes them because they are. We skim over genealogies because we don't know these names. God includes them because he does. We skim past this because we don't care. God includes them because he does. I'm not giving you a guilt trip over genealogies. Read them. But what I'm saying is they convey this enormous theological point that there is not a human being under the sun that has been missed by God, whom God does not know intimately, whom God does not know personally, whose story God does not want to be involved in. 
You can feel, hear me, Seven Mile Road, you can feel nameless in a crowd. You can feel like you don't exist. No one sees you. No one knows you. You can feel like you don't even have a name in a crowd. And I'm telling you, there is no crowd, large or small, that you will ever be in that God does not see right to you and know you distinctly from everyone else. God loves the people of Israel, absolutely. But God loves us individually, personally, intimately, each one of us, every one. The first truth that this genealogy reveals is that God knows us by name. And that's true for us at Seven Mile Road. Hear that. God knows Stephanie. And God knows Jenny and Nina and Hitesh. God knows Charlie and God knows Renju and Amit and Winston. And God knows you. You've heard me list out a few. You for a moment can in your soul know that God speaks your name. That you're included in the list of all the people that he knows. He knows you personally. He knows Ajay. He knows my story. He knows my shortcomings. He knows my strengths. He knows the number of hairs on my head. God knows me as much as he knows the most famous Christians out there. And he knows every one of us. That's a great truth to remember, to hold on to. The first thing that this genealogy teaches us is that God knows us and God knows us by name. But there's more truth that the genealogy teaches. And that's not only that God knows us by name, but that God redeems our stories. First, God knows us by name, but the genealogy also teaches us, second, that God redeems our stories. That God redeems our stories. Look at verse 14, where it starts. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. All right, so pause there for a second. The genealogy starts by looking at Israel's sons. All right, Israel is another name for Jacob. If you read through the book of Genesis, let me tell you this story. You've got a man named Abraham who has no kids. In his old age, God promises him a son. And despite the impossibility of that promise, he believes and he becomes the father of faith and the father of the faithful. God gives him a son and many descendants from that son. God gives Abraham Isaac. Isaac has a son. He has two sons. One of them is Jacob, who God renames Israel, who is the father of the nation we've been studying. Jacob has 12 sons. And so in this genealogy, you're about to be walked through them. We've got a graphic that hopefully will work. All right. So you've got Israel at the top. Follow some of this behind me. And, and hopefully it'll at least help you see what we're talking through. The genealogy starts by giving you Reuben and his sons. Okay? Firstborn, all his sons. Then it gives you Simeon, the secondborn, and all his sons. Right? Just as you'd expect. Then it gives you Levi, the third son. Till this point, the genealogy is just like every other genealogy. In fact, if you go back, you don't have to go there now, to Genesis 46, you would see this exact same list, and it goes just like it does here. Reuben and his sons, Simeon and his sons, Levi and his sons, and then it'll go to the next son, Judah and his sons. But what you have here, next slide, is that all the other nine are not listed. And suddenly the genealogy takes a different turn because now you get no listing of Judah or Gad or Joseph or Benjamin or all the others. Instead, this genealogy, which started out broad, begins to focus in on Levi and go to his sons. You can go all the way down. And so what happens now is the genealogy pays attention solely to Levi's family. I'll move out of the way so you can see it, right? 
The genealogy traces not the 12 sons of Israel and their children, but now narrows quickly to pay attention to one man, the third son of Jacob, a man named Levi, and follows his line down all the way. In fact, it even skips past Moses. Moses is not is central in view here. It follows the line of Aaron down to his son Eleazar and his grandson Phinehas. And so basically, here's what I want you to hear. The genealogy goes from Levi at the top and traces this line all the way down to Phinehas. All right, you can go back. Here, here's what I want you to hear. Phineas, let me tell you who he is. He shows up later in the story. He's not even in the Bible yet. And so this genealogy both looks back to who has come and is looking forward to the son who is yet to come. So it's pointing ahead to Phineas. Phineas is going to be the third high priest of the nation of Israel. He's going to be a loyal man, a faithful man. He's going to have served God faithfully for 19 years or so as the high priest. He's going to be known for zeal for the Lord. When everyone else is following sin, Phineas stays true to God, and God makes a special covenant with Phineas. He's well known to the people of Israel. And so what this genealogy is doing is it narrows the view to trace the story from Levi down to his descendants. It's going to look at Levi all the way down to Phineas and beyond. So that's what I want to tell you. Let me tell you the story of Levi, right? The second thing I want you to remember is that genealogies teach us not only that God knows us by name, but that God redeems our story, so let me tell you this story, because it's a story of redemption. God loves to redeem our stories. It starts, the, the timeline started with, the family tree started with Israel or Jacob. So let me tell you his story. In Genesis 29, you don't have to turn there now, but Jacob, who is Isaac's boy, grows up. He's a, he's a rascal. He's a cheat. He's a scoundrel. He cheats his older brother, and so he goes on the run because his older brother wants to kill him. You got to read through the stories of Genesis, by the way. If you have family troubles, read through Genesis because that family is more screwed up than anything you've ever gone through, right? And, and in fact, some of it is very comical. I was reading through it at Starbucks with Sibby and I just laugh out loud for no reason. He would look over me strange. It's because I was going through Genesis. You'll, I'm telling you, it's a great story. So you've got Jacob. He runs away from his older brother. He goes to his Uncle Laban's house. There he meets Rachel. And this is like the romance story of romance stories. He falls in love with this girl at first sight. He sees Rachel and he falls in love. He wants Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel. And so he goes to Laban and he says, listen, I want that girl in marriage. You got to give her to me. And Laban is probably the only guy who is more shrewd and more of a cheat and more of a rascal than Jacob himself. And so he's not going to give out daughters for free. He says, sure, but you got to work for me for seven years. And then if you love romance, the Bible says he worked seven years, but it seemed like a day because he was in love with her. Right? That's good stuff. So, so he works seven years for this girl. Finally, Laban says, okay. In fact, I'll, I'll read you what he says. He says to his father-in-law, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Seven years this guy's waited and he's very direct. Young men, let me give you a piece of advice. Do not say that to your future father-in-law, right? <laughs> he's waited a long time and he's ready. He says, listen, give me that girl. I've waited seven years. She's going to be my wife tonight. 
Laban, who is, again, a scoundrel, a cheat, a rascal, gets Jacob good and drunk because it's his wedding party. He gets good and drunk, and he slips in his older sister instead. The, the Bible basically paints Leah, Rachel's older sister, as the ugly sister, right? It's a very sad story. I didn't make it up. The Bible did. So he gets that night, instead of Rachel, who he's worked seven years for, he is now married to Leah. He wakes up and he says, what have you done to me? Laban says, everything's good. Just work another seven years and I'll give you Rachel. And so now he works 14 years to get Rachel and he's stuck with Leah. So now he's got these two wives, one whom he loves, one whom he could not care less about. But God knows about Leah. God remembers Leah. And so Genesis tells us that because Leah was hated, God blessed her and blessed her with sons. Sons were very important in that culture. They were your male heirs. They were going to carry on your line. And so Leah is blessed with son after son after son. And with every son, Leah is hoping this will win Jacob's love. He has, she has one son, Reuben. It doesn't work. She has another son, Simeon. It doesn't work. And then she has a third son. And she's convinced that by this son, Jacob will finally be attached to her. And so he, she literally names the boy attached. That's what Levi means. Because he's gonna, she's going to think, by Levi, Jacob will be Levi to me. He'll be attached to me. Only he's born and it doesn't work. Jacob doesn't get Levi. He doesn't get attached and so she births a son who from his very first breath is sort of a disappointment to her, right? You think through, you trace Levi's story. We don't know much of his childhood, but what we do know is he's a disappointment to his mom's expectations from birth. And from birth itself, he's not good enough to win his father's love for her. And then he'll grow up, and the story of Genesis will tell us he'll be overshadowed by his younger brother, and dad will love Joseph much more than he does Levi. So from birth, a disappointment to his mom, not enough to win his father's love, and overshadowed by his younger brother. All right, so if any of you have ever been through difficulties and can relate to Levi, I'd imagine we could, Right? There's, there's a lot in this story that we would resonate with. He feels like he's not enough from the moment he's born. Now, we don't know enough about his childhood to trace it, to figure out how his childhood affected him. What we do know is that Levi grows up to be a very angry young man, a very violent young man. And you can't help but wonder, did some of that childhood play into effect for who he would become? What we do know is that by the time he's a young man, he's a very angry, very violent young man. In Genesis 34, you don't have to turn to it, but we read the story of Dina, who is Leah's daughter and Levi's baby sister. Leah is the youngest with six older brothers. So you can imagine she is the most protected, cared for, nurtured little girl. She's got six older brothers. Levi's one of them. And yet this protected, well-looked-after, cared girl, the unthinkable happens to her because in Genesis 34, she's raped. She's raped by this man who, as despicable as the act is, at least wants to redeem things and make it right. He loves this girl, Dina. And though he's done a horrific evil, he wants to marry this girl and make it right. Right Now, the scriptures do not excuse him for what he's done, but, but I need you to know there are other stories in the scriptures. For example, we, we read of David's son, 
a man named Amon and his daughter Tamar, and this man named Amon rapes Tamar and leaves her, hates her, wants nothing to do with her. It's a little different here. He wants to make it right. He wants to marry this girl. He loves this girl. And so he goes to his father and he says, you've got to get me Dina's hand in marriage. You've got to go to Jacob and to his sons, and you've got to get me Dina as a wife. And so that's what happens. This man named Shechem and his father go to Jacob, and they ask for Dina's hand in marriage. And Levi springs into action. Because Levi, the scriptures tell us, plotted deceitfully and used this opportunity to enact vengeance on this man. What happens is he, he goes to this man, Shechem, and he says, sure, we'll let you marry our sister. The only thing is you're a Hivite. We're Israelites. And if our people are going to start getting married, and if we're going to give you our daughters, and you're going to give us our sons, and we're going to become one big happy family, we're circumcised. That's just a part of the people of who we are. You've got to be circumcised too. And this guy really loves Dina because he goes, sure, I'll do anything it takes. And he gets to go back and convince the whole city that we should all get circumcised. Now, I would love to hear that conversation, right? How do you convince an entire city? You want us to do what? <laughs> right? But he does. He's the powerful man of that city. He goes back to his city, convinces all the males to get circumcised. And then Genesis 34 says this. On the third day when they were sore, I'm not making this stuff up, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamer and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon and slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. So they've got these guys now to be circumcised when they're still recovering, when they're weak. These two brothers go in and slaughter everybody, every male. They kill them all. They rob them of everything they had. They empty the entire city. They carry away their children. They take away their wives and they bring them all home. And when you get to the end of chapter 34, Jacob is furious Jacob says, what have you done in your anger and in your wrath? You've gone crazy and you've made me a stink to the whole nation here. Now, what if they all turn against me because of what you two have done in your foolishness? And Jacob is angry on that day. And it's something that Jacob does not forget, not till his dying breath. Because what you read is that in Genesis 49, Jacob is now about to die. And he gathers his 12 sons for their final words and final blessings. He's going to hand down blessings and, and land and prosperity to all his sons. But when it comes to Levi, he passes along curse rather than blessing because he does not forget what Levi did. In, Jacob, in Genesis 49, Jacob's on his deathbed and with his dying breaths, this is what he says. When he comes to Simeon and Levi, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. 
All the sons have gathered to be blessed. And when it comes to Levi, Jacob says, cursed be you. I don't want anything to do with you. My soul wants nothing to do with you. I don't want to come into your counsel. I don't want anything to do with you. Cursed be your anger. Cursed be your wrath. And in fact, no land is coming to you. You will be scattered throughout Israel. No land, no portion of the land is coming as an inheritance to your descendants. Instead, you will be scattered abroad everywhere as though you're everywhere and nowhere. Nothing will you have to call your own. And those are literally the last words Levi will hear from his father. Because at the end of Genesis 49, Jacob will breathe his last breaths and he'll die. So here's Levi, a man who was born a disappointment to his mom from his birth. A man who was angry and violent and a murderer in his life. And a man who was cursed by his father's death. That's Levi's story. And that's Levi's life. Right? A disappointment at birth. A murderer in life. And cursed at his father's death. And it's almost like the scriptures are asking, what good could come from Levi? What good could come from his line? Right? What, what good could come from the household of Levi, from the family of Levi? It'd be like if you were a child and your last name was Hitler or Stalin or Capone or, or whoever. Right? Without you having done a single thing on the earth, there is a cloud over you, a bad reputation that hangs over you. Right? There's a, a cloud of sin that hangs over your story before you breathed your first breath. You were born into a bad deal. That's what the descendants of Levi would have been like because his curse hung over all of them. And so again, you ask, what good could come from Levi? What could possibly come from this family, from their story, from their house? But Seven Mile Road, God is a gracious God. God is a generous God. God loves to enter our story and rewrite our story and redeem our story and give us an entirely new trajectory. He loves to redeem stories. And that's what the genealogy is going to teach us, that God loves to redeem our stories. Can I tell you what happens to the descendants of Levi? Not only does from Levi's house come forth Aaron and Moses, Moses who would grow up to be literally the greatest savior of Israel's history. But there's more good. In Exodus 32, after the people have been delivered, after they've crossed through the Red Sea, there's this scene where Moses is up on the mountain and they can't handle waiting on him. And so they make a golden calf. It's like the, the valley of the story of Exodus because everything's going great and these guys turn to idolatry. Yahweh has delivered them and they make a baby calf out of gold and say, you're our gods. And God is furious and Moses is angry. And Moses comes down from the mountain in Exodus 32. He's got the Ten Commandments, the covenant in his hand. He's waiting to tell them God's made a covenant with us. And he goes below and sees them all in idolatry. Sees them all at wild play, sexual immorality. They're a mess. And all the people have abandoned God and everyone has left him. And Moses is in his anger, throws down the commandments. And then finally in Exodus 32, he says this. Moses calls out to the whole crowd, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And do you know what the text says? And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. 
The entire nation is lost in sin and idolatry. And he calls out saying, who is on the Lord's side? And the only people that come are the sons of no good Levi. The sons of Levi gather around him. And that day they choose God over their brothers and sisters. And God even uses them to judge their brothers and sisters. And because of their loyalty to Yahweh, on that day, Moses said, forever from now on, you will be installed in God's service. You today are ordained in his service. And from that day on, the Levites become the priests of God. They become the ones who are entrusted by God to care for his tabernacle and to lead his people and to become priests. And do you know what happens? Everything Jacob said happens. They are scattered all throughout the land, everywhere. But do you know why? Because they were priests and they were scattered everywhere so that they could teach the other tribes about God's statutes. You think of that. Everything Jacob said happened. But God turned that curse. They were scattered everywhere so that they could teach the other tribes about God's statutes. Just like Jacob said, they were never given land. All the other tribes received an inheritance, not Levi. You know why? Because God was their inheritance. Let me read you Deuteronomy 18. It says about the Levites, They shall have no inheritance among their brothers, The Lord is their inheritance. And then it says, For the Lord your God has chosen him, that's the priest of Levi, out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. Out of all the tribes, God chooses Levi to stand in his presence, to be his priest, to go into the holy of holies where no one else could go. The sons of Levi would go. As you keep reading in the Old Testament, you find that a king named David comes to power. And in his day, he orders a census. And when he counts, he counts 38,000 Levites who are above the age of 30. And Chronicles will tell us that 24,000 of the sons of Levi were made to have service in the temple. 6,000 of them were entrusted as officials and judges over Israel. 4,000 of them were made gatekeepers of the house of the Lord. 4,000 of them were appointed into the choir. It's the sons of Levi who will write the words of Psalm 84. Maybe you've heard it before. It says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, then dwell in the tents of wickedness. The sons of Levi wrote that. The no good Levi and his descendants wrote that because they were the ones who were entrusted with keeping the temple and guarding the gates and making music and leading the people to the Lord. With the exception of the tribe of Judah from whom most of the kings came, the tribe of Levi, Levi contributed more distinguished leaders and well-known men than all the other tribes. It was from Levi that Moses and Aaron came. It was from the tribe of Levi that Phinehas, the third great high priest, came. It would be from the tribe of Levi that Eli the priest who is like a father to the prophet Samuel and teaches him to listen to God's word. It's from Levi that Eli came. It's from Levi that Ezra, 
the great scribe during Nehemiah's day who heard the word and believed the word and taught the word, who was a great Bible teacher to God's people, came from Levi. It's from Levi that John the Baptist came, the one who Jesus looked at and said, I tell you the truth, there is no one who is born of woman better than John. Apart from Jesus Christ himself, the best human being who ever lived, John the Baptist, came from no good Levi. Nothing good was ever supposed to come from him. Nothing good was ever supposed to come from his line. And yet God is a God who redeems stories. God is a God who takes cursed men and blesses them and makes them a blessing. God is a God who rewrites stories, who redeems stories, who enters stories so that individuals and families from whom nothing good should come, who should amount to nothing, can be used by God, loved by God, blessed by God, and become a blessing for God. Seven Mile Road, you can be redeemed too. Your story can be redeemed. This genealogy is a reminder that you've got a name and you've got a story. And there are people that have come before you. There are people yet to come after you. There are grandfathers and great-grandfathers before you. But there are children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to come after you. And the, the story and the question is, where is your story going to go? Right? Some of you are doomed to thinking, this is who I am. This is who my family has always been. This is what we'll be about. We're alcoholics. We're violent, we're idolaters, we're adulterers. That's just what's in my DNA. And this genealogy is saying, today, God can start a new legacy with you. Today, God can start a new trajectory with you. The curse of your fathers does not have to visit you. It can stop in your generation. You can write a new story that you will pass along blessing for children and children's children for generations to come. Listen to me, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to take cursed men and bear their curse for them so that they could be blessed and be a blessing. I want, I want to read you one verse from Galatians. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Do you hear that? Jesus Christ came into the world so that cursed men and women might not bear their curse anymore, but he might become a curse for them and give them rather blessing and make them a blessing. That's what Jesus is about. In his death, our curse has died with him. And in his resurrection, we've risen to new life and blessing and can be a blessing to others. Today, Jesus welcomes you, invites you to rewrite your story, so to allow him to bear the curse of your story and your family's story so that you might be a blessing. Genealogies teach us that God knows us by name. Genealogies teach us that God redeems our stories. Let me give you one last one quickly and then we'll be done. Lastly, genealogies teach us that God's purposes will prevail. The theological truths that this genealogy is conveying is that God knows our name, God redeems our story, and that God's plans and his purposes will prevail. 
Remember, this genealogy is serving a historical purpose. Absolutely. Moses and Israel, Moses and Aaron are Israel's boys. They're good Jewish boys. This is who they are. But they're teaching an enormous theological truth as well. And here's the truth. God is winning. His purposes are prevailing. And there's nothing the enemy can do to stop it. Right? Every time you read, so-and-so died, it's a reminder. It's true. Sin will lead to death. Every succeeding generation, whenever you read in the Bible, so-and-so lived 137 years and then he died, it's a reminder, the wages of sin is death. We will die for our sin. But every time you read, but they had this many children, and then they had this many children, and every time you hear the generations continue, it's the great hope God is still winning. And this is not done. And through these sons will come a son. And through these children will come one child. Every time you read, he begat so-and-so and he begat so-and-so, every one of those begats is the triumph of God over Satan. Remember, throughout this story, the enemy of God was hard at work, working overtime to what? End the generations, to stop the growth of man through slavery, through the midwives, through the Nile River, whatever it took to put them to death. And every time you read, and yet they had sons, and yet they had sons, and yet they had sons. It is the, the truth that God's purposes prevail, and there's nothing the enemy can do to stop it. Right? What's interesting in this genealogy in particular is that it looks back from Moses and Aaron to Levi and Israel, but it also looks forward, right? It says, here are the sons yet to come. And it talks about Aaron's son Eleazar and his grandson Phinehas. And so there's this trajectory in this timeline that says, look back because God's purposes are there, but look forward to the son that is yet to come because his purposes are there. What this timeline does is already pushes you out into the coming distance, into the future and says, look forward to the son that is yet to come. And so if you follow the trajectory of this timeline and you go past Exodus to the kings and you go past to the prophets, and you get to the very first page of the New Testament, do you know what you find? A genealogy. When the New Testament cracks open, and with its very first words, it gives you another family line. Except not the family line of the deliverer of Israel, Moses, but the family line of the deliverer of the world, Jesus Christ. It gives you the names of those whom God used to bring forth a savior for the world. It gives you the names of those God used to bring forth the one who would redeem all stories. In fact, redeem not just Israel, but the whole world. There's a preview of it in our text itself. In, in Exodus 6, in verse 23, it says, Aminadab and Nashan. Do you know when you'll see those two names again? In Matthew chapter 1. Because they are forefathers to a king named David, who himself is a forefather to a better king named Jesus Christ. You get a family tree in Matthew 1 to remind you God's purposes have continued all the way to Christ. And no matter what the enemy tried, he could not stop the coming forth of the son. The sons of Israel brought forth the great son the great son of God. And when you look at Jesus' family line in Matthew 1, you're going to find lots of names. Names you don't know, but a reminder again, God knows them. Everyone. 
And when you get to Matthew 1 and you read the family line of Jesus, you're going to find again a list of shady characters, sinners, just like Moses' family. You're going to find adulterers, idolaters, murderers, prostitutes, and I'm not exaggerating about anyone. They're all in the family from which Jesus comes. And yet every one is a story that God redeems. It was through people like that that God brought forth the Savior to save people like us. Right? God brought forth from very broken stories and very sinful people, Jesus Christ, to redeem our broken and sinful stories. So Seven Mile Road, my dear friends, what about you? Here's what I want you to hear. When you look at Exodus 6 and you see that family line, I want you to remember your name is somewhere. Think through that. You're a part of a family tree as well. And with your name is a story. And the only question is, what story will your name tell? What legacy will your name leave behind? Because I'm telling you, your name too will be connected to a story and you will leave behind a legacy for children and children's children yet to come. The only question is, what legacy will you leave? What story will your name tell? Will you leave behind a story that leaves a cloud of sin and a bad reputation for generations yet to come? Will you be a part of the curse that your children's children are going to have to suffer under and work to undo? Or will you even on this day start a new legacy for your name and a new legacy for the descendants that are yet to come and the family and people surrounding you? Will you, like John the Baptist, who has received a good heritage, pass along another good heritage for the generations to come? Or will you, like the sons of Levi who gathered around Moses in, in Exodus 32, start a new legacy for the generations to come? We know who our father Levi was, but we are on the Lord's side. Today, you can repent of your sins and you can turn in faith to Jesus Christ, the one who bears curses and ends curses and makes blessing out of cursed men and cursed women. You can come a cursed man or woman to Jesus Christ today and you can leave here a blessed person and a blessing for generations to come. I'm telling you the truth. You can have an eternal change in your destiny and the destiny of descendants to come today. You can repent of your sins. You can come to faith in Christ. You can allow him to redeem you and your story. So what legacy will you leave behind? What will your name tell? What story will be told about you? Will it be they walked in the sins of their fathers and fathers before them? Or when your children or children's children speak about you, would it be this is who their fathers were, but then dad changed? And mom changed, and mom repented, and mom taught us the Bible, and, and so on the stories go. What story will you leave behind? And perhaps most importantly of all, I want you to hear this, and, and know that, please, you are under no shadow of any curse that's been passed on to you. Jesus Christ himself is the curse breaker. Hear that. 
There is no curse that you have to carry because he bore your curse on the cross. The curse of your sin has died with Jesus and in his resurrection, you have risen to a life of blessing to be a blessing. That's your story. But here's what I want to end with most importantly. Not only will your name be a part of some family tree on her, here on earth, but there is a great record of names, a great registry of names. The scriptures tell us not only do people keep family trees, God keeps a family tree. In the book of Revelations, it says he's got a book called the Book of Life. And in it, he jots down the name of every one of his children. He doesn't forget one. He doesn't overlook one. He doesn't forget the picture of a single one. Every one of his children, he's written down their name. The tree starts with God as father, Jesus as older brother, and then it branches out across all time and all space and across the whole world to include all his sons and daughters. And the great question is, is your name written in that book? Is your name on God's family tree? Have you repented of your sins and come to faith in Christ so that he's your older brother and God's your father and everyone around you is brothers and sisters and your name is there? If it's not, again, today, you can repent and God today, you can picture him today writing in your name into the book. Today, before you leave the service, your name wasn't there and before you leave, he can write your name into the book. And for those of you who by grace have already been saved, would you allow your mind to be stunned at the thought, your name's there. You didn't do anything to deserve it or make it happen, and yet God already wrote your name in so you can respond with great joy. These genealogies teach good theological truth, and the truth they teach us is that God knows us by our name, that God redeems our story, and God's purposes for us will prevail. Let's pray.